First Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrusted to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hemenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we have now read these three verses that we're going to study together this morning, God, we pray and ask that you would speak to each of us this morning, Lord that you would instruct us in the truth of your word and that you would continue to guide us as individual believers and collectively as a community, a church family. Lord, that we might better honor and glorify you and reflect you to the world around us who is watching. So Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your love for us that was put on full display through the sending of your son Jesus who died for our sins and rose again for our justification and who now ever lives to make intercession for us in the heavenly places. And so Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation that we have in Jesus by faith. And Lord, we just invite you now to continue teaching and instructing your people for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, you can be seated, and uh, great to see all of you this morning, and such a joy to be able to worship together with each of you here at Apostles Church, and we're just so humbled and thankful for all that God is doing in this little faith community uh, here at Apostles Church. Pretty interesting text that we're looking at here this morning. The Apostle Paul writing to his young protege in the faith, really centers these three verses on kind of a militant command, right? This idea to wage the good warfare. And it's kind of weird for us as believers to hear militant language being communicated in the Scriptures. I was thinking as a parent of young kids that most Christian parents attempt to train their children away from fighting and away from violence, right? Um, we're, We're trying to teach our children to handle their issues and their problems in ways other than fighting, other than violence. After all, King Jesus himself taught and lived a life of nonviolence. So I know for my son, it's not like at the first day of school, I said, okay, Judah, today I want you to pick out two boys at school and I want you to beat them up. Fight the good fight, son. No, we don't do that at all. Right? We're trying to teach our children not to live that way. So it, it seems almost paradoxical then that the Apostle Paul would instruct, no, actually command his true child in the faith to do exactly that. This letter, 1 Timothy, is actually bookended with the command to fight. Here in chapter 1, Timothy is to wage the good warfare. And then over in chapter 6, at the end of this epistle, in verse 12, Paul comes back around to this imagery here, and he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. Now, unfortunately, for some people, this call to wage war hardly seems paradoxical for Christianity. If you're a Muslim visiting us this morning, your mind, when you hear that from a Christian, might immediately go to the Middle Ages and the Crusades that took place. Um, If you're of European descent this morning, your mind might go to the religious conflicts between Catholics and Protestants that have plagued that continent 
in the last 500 years. But is that the sort of thing that Paul is training young Timothy for? After all, he calls Timothy a soldier of Jesus Christ in his second letter to him. Is this call in the text this morning to make war a call to violence or some other thing? Well, this question and many others present themselves in this very brief paragraph that we're looking at that centers on this militant command. So let's just start at the top in verse 18 and let's unpack this instruction that Paul gives to Timothy and really that Paul gives to all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ by extension. Verse 18, this charge, he writes, this charge. If you've been with us in our series in Timothy so far, that word is familiar, charge. You'll remember back in verse 3 that Paul had already charged Timothy with a job. Back in verse 3, he was charging Timothy to root out the false teachers that were in the church at Ephesus. Paul charged Timothy to stop certain persons from teaching different doctrine. That's in verse 3. And now Paul is coming back around to that charge once again. He had digressed a little bit um, from verse 3. He digressed regarding the right usage of the law and wanted to show us how the law should be used in the Christian community because that was the essence of the false teaching here in Ephesus. And then he had also spent a little bit of time reflecting on the glorious gospel of God's grace that had saved him and had actually called and commissioned him into ministry himself. But now here in verse 18, Paul comes back to this charge, this command of Timothy to stop false teaching in the church at Ephesus. He uses here now in verse 18 a metaphor, a metaphor of waging war rather than being direct like he was in verse 3 where he said charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. But as you'll see through this message this morning, he's referring to the same thing. This charge in verse 18 is a charge against heresy. If you're taking notes this morning, the first bullet point I want us to work through is this charge against heresy. I want to show you that that is, in fact, what Paul is charging Timothy to do here. First of all, you need to know that that's what's implied in Paul's reference here to these earlier prophecies that were made about Timothy. Notice in verse 18, this charge is in accordance with the prophecies that were previously made about you. So what Paul's saying is that there was some point in Timothy's life before where there were prophecies made about him regarding his ministry and his life of service to Jesus Christ. As we piece together other texts, we can learn a little bit more about the nature of these prophecies. Now, the most significant of those other texts is actually later in this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes this, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now you'll notice with this verse, there's this moment that Paul's referencing again. He's referencing it here in verse 18, but he comes back here in chapter 4. This moment in time where three things take place for young Timothy. 
Number one, he receives some sort of a spiritual gift. Number two, there's these prophecies that are being made about him. And number three, the elders are laying their hands on him. So likely, during Timothy's ordination to ministry, that moment when the elders are laying their hands on him and praying for him and really commissioning him as a minister of the gospel, at that moment, it seems that what happened was there were prophetic words that were spoken about this man, Timothy, about his ministry that he was set apart to do, and he received a spiritual gift. What was this gift? Well, Paul mentions this gift again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Here's what he says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. So in 2 Timothy here, he refers again to this moment. I laid my hands on you and you received this gift when that happened. And then the rest of that letter is about Timothy correcting false teaching in the church and about Timothy teaching and training future leaders in the church. In chapter 4 of that letter, there's even that famous charge of Paul where he says to Timothy, he says, preach the word in season and out of season. This, this gift that Timothy was given was exhorting and teaching the church. Now the reason why Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity is because teaching God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, and especially correcting people and confronting people in sin is not easy business. It's not for the faint at heart, especially for a young pastor. And Timothy was, in fact, a young pastor. I mean, by a show of hands, how many of you dislike confrontation, if you're being honest this morning? I would say that's almost all of us in this room. Some of you are laughing. You're like, I live for that kind of stuff. <laughs> if you do live for confrontation, you're a unique type of person. Uh, most people naturally want to avoid confrontation. You don't, you don't want to just have to sit down with somebody, whether it's a spouse or a child or a, a coworker or an employee for you and have the hard conversations. It's not fun, right? Most of us would like to avoid it. Now, in pastoral ministry, I've had to confront many people over the years serving in the ministry as a pastor. And I can tell you, it's not for the faint at heart because people don't always take it well. I've had people yell at me. I've had people get up and slam the door to my office and walk out of the church. I even had a guy in the foyer at Harvest years ago who looked at me and he said to me, you are lucky that he's standing here too or I'd beat you up. And he pointed to one of my associates who was with me. Well, the really funny thing about it too is the guy that he pointed to was a really scrawny high school student who was just like volunteering at the church. And so this guy looks at me, he's like, you're lucky he's here, I beat you up. I'm like, okay, whatever. And then he stormed out of the church. But it would be easy, and, and some pastors take this route, to be passive and to ignore sin and error and just hope that it goes away. Like, okay, I know this is going on, but I'm just going to ignore it, and I'm just going to pray and just hope that this problem fixes itself. Let me tell you something, church. Problems seldom fix themselves. If you've ever worked in management, 
then you know if you've got a problematic employee and you think you're just going to sit there and they're going to magically become punctual and show up to work on time, or they're going to magically fix the bad attitude that's driving your customer base away instead of toward you, you know that doesn't happen. More often than not, I would say almost always you have to deal with the issue. You have to have the hard conversations. The right thing to do, and honestly, the pastoral thing to do, is deal with the issues in a godly way. To speak the truth in love. Using the scriptures to warn, to confront, to admonish, and to correct people in hopes that they're going to repent and get back on the right track. To summarize this point, what Paul is saying here in this verse, he's, he's reaffirming his charge to Timothy to not be passive, but to actually confront the false teaching. And Paul knows how hard it is. So he's encouraging Timothy to reflect on this supernatural calling that he has. I mean, this was, this was a gift he received by prophecy. And Paul is saying, remember that. That God has gifted you for this. And he's telling him to reflect on that so that Timothy will have the strength to be able to carry out this difficult task. So we see that there's a charge against heresy here in our text. The second thing we need to see in the text is the the combat against heresy. The combat against heresy. What I mean by that is this. What is the nature of the combat Timothy is being called to? If you've read the Bible before or you've been in church for a long time, then you're probably well aware that the Christian life is routinely compared to warfare. We see a lot of texts that use this kind of imagery or this sort of a metaphor for the Christian life, that it's actually warfare. So an obvious question becomes, who or what are we battling? And what are our weapons and how do we actually win in this warfare? Well, the Bible teaches us that we have, in the type of battle that we're in, we have both inward and outward enemies. Inward? What do you mean by that? Are there little demons crawling around inside of me that I'm fighting against? Or what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, inward, the Bible teaches that that as a believer, you have an inward battle going on against wrong desires and fleshly passions. Wrong desires and fleshly passions. That those sorts of things inside of you are actually internally waging war against you. In other words, our natural tendency as human beings is not to honor God. It is not to choose the right things. We naturally are bent toward the wrong things. That's why with little children, you don't have to train them to start lying. You don't have to train them to be selfish. Those things are just innate. And we have to start teaching our children not to live and behave like that. So we have an inward enemy. James refers to this in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Look at where he points the finger of where the problem is here. He asks a question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's asking the church here. Where do do fights come from among the church? His answer is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, you desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, you desire certain things and when you can't get them, then you resort 
to sinful things to try to achieve what you want. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 refers to this inward battle as well. The Apostle Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and here's that militant language again, which wage war against your soul. Finally, Galatians 5.17 we read, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So again, we have an inward battle that is raging inside of us every single day. But that's not all. The Scriptures teach us that there is actually an outward enemy, and this is really what, more of what Paul is talking about at this point in the epistle. Our outward enemy in the Bible would be the devil and the demons, the fallen angels, and the fallen world system that they lead in opposition against God. Let me share some text with you. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray this way. This is Matthew 6.13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or some translations, from the evil one. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now I want you to notice in this text, there's actually the inward and the outward elements both present here in Ephesians 2. Check this out. He says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then here's the outward opponent that we face. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then here comes the inward battle. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then over in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, again, look at the, the outward enemy we're facing here. Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, like our, our battle's not against other people, he's saying but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So who are we battling? That's who we're battling. That's who the war, so to speak, of the Christian life is against. So here's a very important question for us if we don't want to get pummeled in the battle. What is the enemy's weapon? Like, like, what is he using against us? What is the weapon? Answer, chlorine gas. Wait, no, that's not right. Hold on. Answer, this is really important, deception. Lies. See, sometimes when we think about spiritual warfare, we, we, we almost make this overly mystical. And we think it's just kind of this... this bizarre, really hard to describe type of spiritual battle that's going on. And, and there is a mysterious element here. But the actual weapon in the enemy's arsenal is deception and lies. And I want to show you this from the Scriptures. Satan is called the father of lies. Jesus called him that in John 8.44. And you need to know that this is what Satan has done from the very beginning. 
He has sought to deceive and lie to human beings. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Our very first parents, Adam and Eve. Satan comes along in the garden. And what does he do to Eve? He questions what God has said. He says to her, did God really say? Now she has to stop and think. Well, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what God said. And then Satan goes, no, 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 no. Listen, God knows that in the moment that you eat of that fruit, you will become like God. And all of a sudden, a false narrative is introduced into the storyline. And now Eve and her husband Adam have the truth of what God has said to them being opposed by deception and a lie from the devil. And Satan continues to do this today. He comes along and he says to us, he gives partial truths and then blends it together with deception to lead us away from God. He'll say to you, doesn't God want you to be happy? You're like, yeah, I mean, I think so, right? Yeah, God wants me to be happy. Well, then certainly God wouldn't want you to stay in this difficult marriage to that person and, and be so unhappy. Or, well, well, certainly if God wants you to be happy, then, then God wouldn't want you to not be sexually involved with the, the boyfriend that you're so in love with and you plan on marrying anyway. Of course God wouldn't hold those things back from you. And he introduces these false narratives and he's trying to deceive us to draw us away from obedience to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, this is so important, this is why I'm really harboring on, or harping on this, but I want you to notice that this is exactly how the battle lines are framed in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a famous passage on spiritual warfare. Look at the text, we're going to put it on the screen here. And notice this is how the battle is framed. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He's already said that in Ephesians, so it's not a physical battle, it's spiritual. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, well what are the strongholds? He's going to tell us. We destroy what church? arguments, and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you notice the, the way he's framing the battle there? We have a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle, he says. And we have power available to us to destroy strongholds, but the strongholds are arguments and lofty opinions that are being raised against the knowledge of God. And that's why it's not a coincidence that our offensive weapon in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is, Paul writes, the Word of God. That also explains... Why when Jesus was engaged in His most intense moment of combat prior to the cross with the devil in the wilderness, the weapon of choice that Jesus went to was the Word of God. Three times quoting from the book of Deuteronomy as the enemy, Satan, was trying to deceive, trying to introduce lies to our Savior. His weapon was the Word and He used it to correct the lies of the enemy and to ward those things off and to stand firm in the truth of God's word. These false teachers, 
that Paul is so concerned about in, in the church at Ephesus. They were being led by the devil and the spiritual forces of evil to pull the Ephesians away from the truth of the gospel. The only truth that could save people. The only truth that could put people on a path of blessing and a path of joy and a path of happiness in their life. And so Timothy's weapon for stopping this was the Word of God. Let me just bring this full circle in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Again, Paul is connecting all these dots for us. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And then check this out. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see how this all works? Timothy is armed with the truth. He's able to correct these lies and the false teaching, which actually delivers people from the snare of the devil. And this is why, friends, we all need to be a people that are immersed in the Word of God. I do not understand Christians who do not care to study and engage with the Word of God. Christians who don't see that as vital to their Christian life and their Christian experience. I don't understand that. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Meditating on the Bible is to spiritual warfare what going to the shooting range is to conventional warfare. I mean, what would happen to a soldier who just said, you know what, I'm really not interested in practicing with my rifle. Like, how's that going to work out for a soldier? Unless he's Desmond Doss from Hacksaw Ridge, not very well. Okay, he's going to get pulverized by the enemy. And in the same way for a Christian who has no interest in hiding the word of God in their heart, listen, you're going to get bulldozed over by the world and the flesh and the devil. We must be a people of the word. Okay, let's, let's move along because the pastor's getting going here. <laughs> Number three, we talked about the charge against heresy, the combat against heresy. Number three, the cause of heresy. What would cause these false teachers to veer? What would cause you and me to veer? If you're a Christian here this morning, I would assume you have no plans for the next five years of your life to being a heretic. Like, like that's not what you're planning on doing. Your goal in the next five years is not to shipwreck your faith if you're a Christian here this morning. But it happens. How does that sort of a thing happen? Well, Paul's going to address that for us right here. Verse 19, he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Rejecting what? Answer, a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, scholars point out that the rejection here in verse 19 is in the singular, not in the plural. Meaning that he's not saying by rejecting these, plural, which would point back to faith and a good conscience. No, because it's singular. He's saying by rejecting this, a good conscience, 
that leads to shipwrecking a person's faith. Now, Paul here is picturing the journey of faith. He's kind of introducing another metaphor here. But he's picturing the journey of faith as a sail across the ocean. In which, if a ship and if its crew were to get off course, you run the risk of shipwreck and total loss. Now, prior to GPS and satellite technology, the compass was the single most important instrument for maritime navigation. It was invented over 2,000 years ago, and it's actually still very, very useful today. Airplanes still use compasses. They're very sophisticated compasses, but so do uh, people who are sailing and, and ships. They use compasses still to this day. They're very, very useful tools. And if your compass was to break, that puts you in a really scary and perilous situation especially if you were in an intense fog and you couldn't see landmarks or you couldn't see the stars above you, for your compass to break would leave you hopeless and really at the mercy of the elements. A couple weeks, well, I guess it was a little over a month ago, um, I was sailing with a few friends here in Santa Barbara and I was getting to, to steer the boat, which was a lot of fun. So feel really cool when you're out there steering a boat. And so I'm steering the boat, and we left the harbor and, and got out, I'd say about a half a mile from the shore, and all of a sudden there was a really, really thick ocean fog right there, kind of like what we see this morning, but really thick, to where our visibility, Janae was there, she remembers, but the visibility was maybe here to the back of the sanctuary in every direction. And it kind of was a little bit eerie because we had passed a bunch of other boats that were coming in uh, before we got into this fog. And so we're like, are they still going to be coming in? And we're kind of racing at seven knots. And I'm thinking this could be bad, but thank God nothing happened. But we're going and this fog continued for three and a half, four miles off the coast. And we had sailed for well over an hour just toward the islands in this really dense fog. And the whole time I was looking at the compass and I was staying on a certain trajectory on the compass. Well, now it was time to turn around before it got dark. And we're in pretty significant swells. It's really choppy. So it was really hard. It was actually kind of a good forearm workout to try to stay on a course the whole time. But now we turned the boat around and we started heading back. And so I had to reverse and say, okay, I've got to go in the exact opposite direction on the compass here. And I've got to hold that course through the wind and through the swells. And I remember we're sailing back in toward the, toward the shore and you can't see the shore. You can't see the coastline at all, just the fog. And I had this epiphany and I thought, how terrifying must it have been for sailors for the last, you know, two, three, four thousand years of human history who didn't have all the sophisticated equipment. And this was the only thing they had was this compass. I mean, you just get off by a slight degree for a long enough period of time and you miss the island you're going to, you miss the continent you're going to, and you are completely lost at sea. And it was kind of an eerie feeling, but it was a very satisfying feeling when I held that course. And when we got back through the fog, it was like, there's the marina right there. This is amazing how this works. One commentator noted this. This is really interesting. He said that for many serious-minded writers in the ancient world, the human equivalent to the compass was the conscience. The human equivalent to the compass, the thing that, the, the tool that keeps you on the right track is the conscience. To reject a good conscience is to effectively break it, which leads to a shipwreck 
of your faith. Now, from a biblical perspective, that mysterious, kind of quiet, small voice inside of all of us that starts to yell at you when you're choosing to do the wrong thing and sort of encourages you when you're choosing to do the right thing is actually a God-given gift. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, Conscience is to the soul what pain is to the body. Right? You feel a sensation of pain And that's a good thing. It warns you to stop what you're doing. If you touch something hot and you feel a pain, you you want to withdraw. Well, your soul has a sensor just like that as well called your conscience. And it pings when you start veering into a path of destruction and danger. And that's a good thing. It's a gift from God. But did you know that if you were to continually reject your conscience so that when it pings and it says, don't do this, don't do this, if you continue to do that, you can actually destroy your conscience. The biblical word would actually be sear your conscience. Again, a great um, image to think about if you think back again to physical pain. If you put your hand into a fire and held it there, you would sear your nerves. And all of a sudden, the nerves would be dead, the nerve endings, and you would not feel anymore. And the Bible takes that picture and applies it to your conscience. That if you continue to stick your conscience into the fire, so to speak, that you can get to the place where it's pinging and you're ignoring, it's pinging and you're ignoring, it's pinging and you're rejecting, to where you actually sear the nerve endings of your conscience, so to speak. And all of a sudden, it's dead to you. All of a sudden, that pinging no longer happens. All of a sudden, that internal guide that's meant to indicate to us, to be another voice to us of what the right path is, actually stops working, and you can sear your conscience. Paul writes that having done this to their conscience, they have shipwrecked their faith. And on the other hand, it's precisely by preserving a good conscience that Timothy will be able to keep the faith. Isn't it interesting that the way to destroy your faith, listen, is to destroy your conscience? That's the way that Paul's framing the argument here. The way to destroy your faith is through destroying your conscience. See, our behavior and our belief are inseparably linked. So that wrong thinking can obviously lead to wrong living. But, did you know that wrong living can actually lead to wrong thinking? It works both ways. It works in both directions. John Calvin said this, he said, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Now that might be a bit of an overstatement, but the point is well taken, that that usually wrong behavior is what leads to wrong belief, not the other way around. As a high school and young adult pastor for seven years, it was my experience with dozens and dozens and dozens of young adults who were raised in Christian homes, growing up to affirm the faith of their parents, to affirm the faith of the church, it was my experience that they began to stray morally long before they began to stray theologically. What I mean by that is 15 and 16 and 17 year old young adults were not saying, you know what, I have major intellectual issues with Christianity and therefore I'm going to go start living in rebellion. Way more often than not, 
It was that they wanted to start living in a way that was contrary to God's word. And once they got into established behavior patterns, they constructed a worldview and a belief system that affirmed them in the way that they wanted to live. I've known a number of men and women in ministry over the years who were serving the Lord with zeal, with passion, serving the church, and they were orthodox in their theology, but unbeknownst to the rest of the church, they were harboring some particular sin that they were living in, they were cultivating, they would not get rid of, and eventually that particular sin that they didn't want to repent of led them to rejecting the Word of God and to becoming heretical and straying from the truth. It's amazing to watch. It's not surprising then that Paul would write in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, check this out, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you, see, do you see what he's saying there? By their unrighteousness, they want to live the wrong way, and because of that motivation, they're actually suppressing the truth about God. Church, I can tell you this morning that for every one person that I've met as a pastor who has rejected Christianity because of serious intellectual obstacles, I have met dozens of people who have rejected Christianity for moral reasons. Meaning that they just simply don't want to live their life the way God tells them to live their lives. And they say, therefore, no to Christianity. I want to live the way I want to live. So Paul tells Timothy, and he's telling us this morning, maintain a good conscience by living a holy life because your slide away from God will come from a slide into sin. And you cannot afford that. Which leads us to our final point, the consequences of heresy. We cannot afford to allow this to happen to us because the consequences are way too serious. Paul uses a word that should scare all of us. I should say. That's what scare all of us. He talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says, I handed them over to Satan. Sounds intense, right? I handed these dudes over to Satan. What? What does that even mean here? Paul lists these two men who were examples of what he'd just been talking about. Two men who became heretical and who made a shipwreck of their faith by rejecting conscience. And so their consequence is to be handed over to Satan. What does that mean? Did Paul call a secret meeting with the devil? He looked at Lucifer and he said, so, so what can I get for Hymenaeus and Alexander? What do you give me? Is that what he means here? No. Paul uses this same wording to hand someone over to Satan again in 1 Corinthians 5. And in that context, he's clearly referring to expulsion from the church to removal from the assembly, forbidden to meet with and eat with the rest of the church. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Pretty big issue in the church. And you thought we had problems. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Then he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So that, that's what he's saying. I want that person to be removed from among you. 
And he says, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, and here is the expression, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So handing over Satan means expelling from the church. Now, why would Paul consider kicking somebody out of the church? Why would he consider that handing someone over to Satan? Well, the world that we live in is under the sway of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. N.T. Wright writes this, he says, Paul saw the fellowship of the church as the place above all where the power of God was active to heal, guide, lead, and direct individual Christians. To forbid people access to it was therefore tantamount to sending them away into outer darkness to a place where the only spiritual influence they might come under would be of that or be that of the accuser the satan do you see what he's saying that it, that it's here above all other places on earth inside the fellowship and the community of faith the church where god's power is present to guide lead heal protect his people so for somebody to be put to the outside of this fellowship is actually in a sense to hand them over to Satan where they no longer have the spiritual influence of God's people. Church, do we still do this sort of thing now? In the 21st century, do we still hand people over to Satan? And if so, how? The answer is yes. People can still be and should at times still be expelled from the church. We see Jesus' teaching on this in Matthew 18. I won't read the whole passage because we need to finish. Jesus says there, if a brother sins against you, you need to go to that person. You need to try to deal with it. And he says, and if you win your brother back, fantastic. However, if that person's unwilling to repent, he says, then get another person or two and go kind of as a team to handle the matter. He says, if they still won't listen to the group of you, then you take the matter to the church. And he says, and if that person still won't listen to the pleading and the begging and the admonishing of the church, then guess what? Jesus says, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. To actually expel somebody from the fellowship is the last resort of church discipline. And this is one of the reasons why membership matters. Membership is our way, guys, as a church, it's our way of being able to affirm to the best of our ability who in this assembly are actually members of God's kingdom and who are not. It's like issuing a passport. And when a person who is a member of the church begins to undermine the gospel, either through the way that they're choosing to live or the beliefs that they're beginning to hold, we seek to correct them and help them to stay on the right path in following Jesus. However, if that person is unwilling, if they will not receive the, the loving correction of all of us as a church family, our last resort is to revoke the passport, i.e. to terminate a person's membership in the local church. Now you might be sitting here thinking, Daniel, that sounds really harsh and judgmental. That's not the way the New Testament pictures it. 
Actually, the New Testament pictures that action as the most loving thing you can do for a sinning sister or brother in the church. In fact, look at Paul's heart in this. It's not just to punish the person, it's actually to see them restored. Look at verse 20 in our text. I delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme in verse 20. He's saying, I'm doing this because I want them to come back to the truth. Or in 1 Corinthians 5, remember they were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And here's the reason. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, look, when we do this, when somebody's actually terminated from membership in the church, and they're actually excluded from receiving the body and the blood of Christ, The hope is that as they go back out into the world, they're going to realize really quickly, I've lost something precious. I so miss that close relationship with the Lord. I so miss the fellowship that I had with God's people. And nothing compares that, you know what, I'm going to come to my senses. And like the prodigal in Luke 15, I'm going to run home to my father's house. And he's going to throw his arms around me. And when people do that, we as a church get to throw our arms back around them and affirm their faith and affirm their membership in the church. And it is a celebration. Now lastly, some of you might be thinking, Daniel, doesn't this kind of talk scare non-believers away from our church? (laughs) Like, Like, Pastor, aren't you aware that there are people here this morning that probably aren't Christians? And to hear you talking about terminating people's membership, isn't that going to make them say, I don't want to hang out with people like this? My answer is absolutely not. Did you know that the number one complaint most of our non-believing friends have about the church is our hypocrisy? I mean, how many people do you know that say, you know what, I'm just not interested in the church because everybody that I know that's a Christian is unloving and judgmental and they don't even live the way that Jesus says to live in the first place. I would submit to you that if there's non-believers here this morning talking or hearing us talk as a church family about taking sin seriously and about actually being faithful followers of Jesus Christ and cheerleading each other on in that journey, I would submit to you that the non-believers in our presence this morning are going, it's about time. <laughs> They're saying, praise Jesus. Wait, did that just come out of my mouth? I don't even believe in him yet. We don't need to be worried about that. The fact of the matter is if we love Jesus and we love the gospel and if we really love one another, then we care about each other's souls. We don't want to see people shipwrecking their faith. We want to see people walking the walk of faith with Jesus and we want to see people living lives that are going to bring blessing to them and everyone else around them. As you can see in closing, the stakes in this spiritual battle are high. There are real people with real souls who become real casualties if we're not careful. This is why Paul charges Timothy to wage the good warfare. Armed with the truth of God's word and armed with a good conscience, Timothy is able to confront the false teaching in the church and even have the hope that as he, do, as he does that, some of those people will repent and realign themselves with the God of all grace. What an encouragement Timothy must have felt as Paul taught him these things 2,000 years ago. And friends, what an encouragement for us today. This is our responsibility as a church. And as we practice these things, God is glorified and we all experience good together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. It is such a gift to us, God.
Because we are painfully aware this morning that we have an ever-present enemy. In fact, Peter calls him a roaming lion who's seeking someone to, destru- to, to devour. Just a lion going back and forth saying, where's an easy target? And Lord, we know that he's a, a vigilant enemy. And we know that he's trying to feed us deception and lies. And he wants to steer us away from the truth. And so again this morning, God, we want to say thank you for your word. Lord, we want to say thank you for your son, Jesus, who this whole book, Genesis to Revelation, points us to. Lord, we're so thankful that Jesus reached out to us, even though we, as Ephesians 2 said, were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were so heavily influenced by Satan and this fallen world system that he's, he's operating with. And yet, Jesus, you loved us and you came and you reached out and you plucked us out of the fire and you saved us by grace. And we want to say thank you this morning. Jesus, we want to reaffirm our faith in you this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to turn away from sin. Lord, I pray right now in this moment that if there's a particular sin, that someone in this room is, is harboring. And our conscience has been pinging us for so long, saying it's not worth it. Turn away from these things and live. Lord, I pray that there would be a moment of deliverance right now. That your Holy Spirit would strengthen their faith, that they would go home from here today, renewed as a woman in Christ or a man in Christ. And that they would not continue on this path toward shipwreck but that they would begin on a path of healing in their relationship with you. Lord, I believe there are some in this room who need to make that decision today. Lord, help them to do it before it's too late. And Lord, as we go to receive communion in a few moments, I pray that all of our faith would be renewed and strengthened. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.